0: Welcome to our sermon for today. If you have your Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, that's where we're going to be kicking off. So here we are, we've got three lessons left to go in our Story of Jesus series. And we've got three chapters left to go of Matthew. So what we're going to do is slow the whole thing right down. We've been kind of going through... Um, two chapters a week sometimes three or four chapters per week and for these last three weeks because there's so much that's jam-packed into these chapters we are going to slow it um, the whole way down we're just going to take it one chapter per week and really allow for for this material and for what's being talked about in these chapters to just sit with you and to spend more time just thinking about what it would have been like just um, meditating on this this whole how this whole um, couple of days panned out, where um, Jesus was finally put to death as as we 've been leading up to this whole time, and where we finally see the the culmination of the plan that he was putting forward so matthew twenty six is where we 're at today, and uh, we 're going to go through this chapter now I try and um, keep some of these lessons lighthearted, but I'll be honest, there's not a whole lot of lighthearted material in uh, chapters 26, 27, and 28. So um, it's pretty heavy going stuff. It's very serious and um, it weighs heavily on you. And um, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to be a, um, a couple of chapters that really sit heavily. And make you think seriously, uh, not just about things that were done, but but to think about your own life and think about how these things apply to you and I. So just to remind you, we're in the final week of Jesus' life. We've been looking at his life in Galilee and all the preaching that he was doing in that region and how he drew big crowds. He performed miracles. He did lots of teachings. And, and that's the story that Matthew is telling. Everything seemed to be going well. And then he had this opposition come up and the opposition was largely from the people of Jerusalem coming down and um, investigating what he was doing, disapproving of what he was teaching and um, trying to find fault in him so they could get rid of him and then we saw from around about chapter 16 onwards um, Jesus has confirmed to his uh, apostles that he really is the Christ and that his Uh, pathway forward leads to Jerusalem where he will be killed um, by the the leaders in Jerusalem. And from that point on, we've heard time and time again um, how, how certain he is, that that's where his journey ends. That's where he's going. And so we've followed him on the road to Jerusalem. We've followed him as he's entered into Jerusalem. We've followed him as he's gone to the temple and he's flipped over the tables and he's gone and... Um, completely exposed the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders for who they were. Completely shown how um, antagonistic they were to God and to his ways. And Jesus has exposed all of that in a very open and public way. And the uh, leaders in Jerusalem have... No other choice. You know, they can't just let him go on accusing them of these things, saying these things. So they are going to do whatever they can to stop him. And we see in this chapter that finally they act on what they've been wanting to do for the last half of the book. So this is where we're at. We're getting towards the end of the week now. He came in on the Sunday. We're up to um, the, the last couple of days of the week. Let's read from chapter 26. Um, And we'll read verses 1 through 5, just to kind of get our bearings here. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So in this um, chapter, in chapter 26, the first section is the uh, preparations that are being made for the Passover festival. So the Passover um, festival itself goes for a week, but there's a special meal that's held towards the end of that week. And this is going to be um, something that Matthew is building up towards and something that the whole week is kind of centred around. So you've got to put yourself uh, in Jewish shoes in the first century. You've got to think about what this would have been like. So the Passover was their ultimate festival. It was the... Um, kind of the, the festival to end all festivals. This was the, the big moment where so many people came to Jerusalem, where there was an enormous religious celebration. And it wasn't just a religious festival, it was also a national festival. So it was, it was kind of like the national day mixed with the biggest religious day and, and putting the two of those together. This was a really significant time for the Jews And if you remember what the Passover was all about, it traces back to the book of Exodus. And it's all about the story of how the Jewish nation was born. It's a story of slavery and captivity leading to a decisive, powerful movement of God to free his people. And so these are the themes that people are thinking about in this week. They're thinking about... How God, at that time, when they were slaves in Egypt, he came, he he inserted himself into history and he changed their future. He freed them from their oppressors and led them into the land um, where they could serve him and live for him. So it was a festival about being slaves and then finding true freedom. And this is going to be a theme that Jesus is playing on. This is going to be a theme that Jesus is going to talk about Um, to explain what his death is all about and and what he's actually doing there in Jerusalem. So in verses 1 through 19, you have these preparations that are being made and as they're preparing for the Passover meal, this this meal that commemorates freedom from slavery um, and God being in control and and showing his power over um, the, the worldly leaders, you have also going on in the background the um, the flip side, the, the leaders in Jerusalem are looking for an opportunity to take down Jesus. So look at um, verses 14 through 16 with me. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here it is. We, uh, Matthew is just a, a genius of storytelling. He's He's giving you this, his lead up to this feast and, and what this feast means. And in the background, he's got this other um, uh, wicked kind of plan that's being developed and slowly being built up as well. So then we have the um, preparation in verses 17 through 19. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the, the disciples did um, as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So here it is. OK, coming to this moment, coming to this final feast, final night of Jesus' life where he is going to celebrate this feast. Um, by the way, if you've never seen a Passover feast before, um, it's quite helpful to actually see what that's like. Um, after we've finished the service today, in the comments of the um, Facebook Video. We will upload a link to um, a great video that explains how the Passover feast worked and what it would have looked like in the first century. And you can look at that, watch that afterwards if you want a bit more um, detail on how this scene would have looked. Okay, so we have the preparations are made and here it comes. Judas is getting ready. The chief priests are getting ready. Jesus is getting ready. It's coming towards this. Um, one feast. And so this happens in verses 20 through 29. This is the Passover meal. And you may have a picture in your head of what this looks like because you've seen Da Vinci's um, The Last Supper. It's a a very famous um, artwork representing this scene. Uh, Many other people have tried to represent this scene as well. This is... uh, One of the really decisive moments in the book of Matthew. Jesus has been telling his disciples for about 10 chapters now that he's going to die. He slips it in almost in every chapter. He just takes his disciples aside. He tells them again, you know that we're going up to Jerusalem. You know that I'm going to die up there. But one thing you might have noticed as you've been reading through Matthew and, and following along is that Jesus is always telling his disciples that he is going to die, but very rarely does he actually tell them why he's going to die. In fact, just think about it for a moment. Um, in, what you've, in what we've looked at in Matthew, can you think of any um, instances when Jesus has actually explained why he's going to die and what his death is actually going to mean? He very rarely says it and I'm not sure whether the disciples just didn't think to ask it or whether they did ask and and he didn't give them a clear answer but there is actually in all of the teaching that he did in all of the lessons the sermons that he gave all of the times that he took his disciples aside he tells them that he's going to die Uh, but never does it come up why this is going to happen and why he seems to think his death is so necessary. There's only one um, verse in all of Matthew so far that actually gives us a hint as to why Jesus is going to die. And that's in Matthew chapter 20. If you just want to go back with me to Matthew chapter 20. And you might have um, skimmed over it as you read it because it's, it's kind of in a different story and it's related to to something different. But this is really the only hint that we have so far as to why Jesus um, this whole book is leading up to Jesus' death. So you remember that um, James and John, their mum came to Jesus and um, in a classic case of helicopter parenting, um, she asked for her sons to be given a privileged position in the kingdom of God. And um, the ten, the other apostles heard it and they were really angry at them. They thought, how dare you um, try and elevate yourself and become the best. And then Jesus uses this as a teaching instruction and He's constantly trying to get his disciples to understand. The kingdom of God is about service. It's not about um, being the best and having people serve you. So this is what he says in verse um, 26 to 28. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's it. That's all we know so far about why Jesus is going to die. He's going to die to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean? We don't know. Um, he just hasn't explained it. He just hasn't told us that so far. So the Passover is going to be the time where we understand a little bit more about why Jesus is going to die. So again, the, the Passover feast... It's all about God giving his people freedom from captivity. God saved them from their enemies. And the Jews, if you read any of the uh, writings from the century or two before Jesus lived, the Jews were focused on this idea that when the Messiah came, he would essentially do another exodus. There would be another freedom from captivity because this time... The Jews weren't under Egyptian captivity. They were under what captivity? Captivity to the Romans. The, the Romans were patrolling their streets. The Romans were deciding their taxes. The Romans were um, deciding how they lived and, and what they could do. And so the Jews were fully expectant that just as God had delivered and um, released his people from bondage in the past, they were fully looking forward to the day when the Messiah came to free them from their new captors not Egypt this time but Rome so they were looking forward to the new exodus and every time they celebrate the Passover they're not just looking at the past they're looking at the future as well they're looking at one day we're going to have the ultimate Passover where we're going to be freed once more where God is going to come down to this earth he's going to put himself in the history books once again and he's going to deliver his people But you remember what Matthew told us about Jesus. You remember who Jesus came to deliver. He came to deliver his people, but from what? From the Romans? No, in in Matthew 1 and verse 21 it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save or deliver his people from their sins. So Matthew has been telling us from the start that Jesus' mission is not a mission to do a a new physical exodus they're not going to be physically walking through the Red Sea once more Jesus takes this Passover meal which is saturated in meaning uh, about captivity and freedom and God coming to the rescue and he applies that meal to himself and he says that's about me and my mission and he's not talking about freeing the people from the Romans he's talking about let's read it for um, ourselves and, and see exactly what he's talking about In Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Look at the freedom that he's giving. Look at the the Passover that he is initiating. It says, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, if you want to understand why Jesus was going to die, you have to understand, first of all, what the Passover was about and how Jesus was taking that and applying it to his life and his mission. He was Essentially repurposing a feast that God had given to the Jews and saying, yes, but ultimately these symbols represent something greater. These symbols represent a new type of freedom from slavery, a new type of deliverance from captivity. A freedom from what? Well, the blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. What was it that Jesus wanted to set us free from? It was from our sins. Okay, so that gives you a bit of an insight, finally, into why Jesus is going to die. He believes that his death, his body, his blood will somehow bring about a new type of exodus, a new type of freedom from captivity. It's going to be um, the Passover, but... A completely new twist on it, a completely different type of Passover that's going to be um, about freedom from not just a physical enemy, but the ultimate enemy. So he gives them this Passover, and no doubt they had many questions on this. <laughs> this isn't the most straightforward passage. No doubt they had a lot of questions as to why the blood and the bread, um, why that was necessary, what that all meant. But Jesus doesn't seem like he gave all of those answers right then. He goes on and the story continues and he gets closer and closer towards this death that he has been predicting. So in verse 36, sorry, verse 30 to 68, we have the arrest of Jesus. Let's read uh, verses 30 to 36 to start off with. Verse 30. And when they had sung him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So they're in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Um, And then Jesus takes them out of the city. This is late at night. And they go up onto the hill on the eastern side of the city, the the Mount of Olives it's called. And he tells his disciples that they're they're going to be falling away. And Peter is adamant that even if everyone else falls away, even if it costs him his life, he won't be falling away. Jesus takes them to a place called Gethsemane. You can still go to Gethsemane today just at the bottom of the Mount of Olives and from Gethsemane you look up there's kind of a a hill that leads up to the western wall of uh, Jerusalem sorry the eastern wall of Jerusalem and the temple and so they would be there in the garden and they would wait there for what seems like several hours uh, and then eventually that night there will be a delegation of people who come down To arrest Jesus and that's the place where he'll be taken into custody so Jesus prays he wants some comfort and he wants some company and he's got his friends around him but they don't understand what's going on and as much as they don't want to they keep falling asleep must have been late at night they must have had a, a really crazy week and they must have just it says in the text that their eyes were heavy um, we can all relate to this you know when you you don't want to sleep when you're listening to a sermon and you don't want to sleep but your eyes are just getting heavier and heavier um, Zacchaeus i um, oh, not Zacchaeus, um, the, the man who Eutychus is the, what I'm thinking about you remember Eutychus fell out of the window when Paul was preaching, sure he didn't want to fall asleep but his eyes were getting tired and then he you know, just eventually fell into that sleep the disciples are in the same position they don't understand what's going on they don't really comprehend how critical this moment is and how much Jesus wants them to be with him and Jesus is truly alone He has nobody there to comfort him. He's worried. He's scared. He's dreading what comes next. And all of his friends can't even stay awake to be there for him. Let's read verse 37 and 38. It says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, it seems like he he had a close relationship with these um, people in particular. So he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus just wants his closest friends to be with him on his darkest night, on his most sorrowful moment where his sorrow is just, he can't contain it. And verse 39 and 40 is some of the saddest verses going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? It's interesting, Jesus says here, one hour. Um, now, if you read through the prayer, it only takes about 20 words for him to say that prayer. But he comes back to his disciples and says that you know he's been gone for an hour. I don't know whether he prayed this prayer over and over again um, for an hour or whether this was just the, the shortened, condensed version of what his prayer was. Regardless, to go and pray for an hour straight, um, it takes a lot of concentration. It's something that I think a lot of us find very challenging. But he, he was desperate. He was so sorrowful and so emotionally invested in this moment that he, he was just caught up in prayers. And he comes back and he picks out Peter in particular. I don't know why he picks out Peter, but he, he looks at Peter and he says to Peter, couldn't you wait with me just one hour? I can't imagine what Peter would have thought looking back at this in years to come. The one night that Jesus really needed him. And he was there sleeping, regardless of his denial, regardless of all the mistakes he made. When Jesus most needed a friend, he was catching some rest. Jesus goes and he prays again in verse 42 to 46. He says again the second time he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus is in the garden. He's with his friends, but really he's alone. And he's in complete anguish. And he's got no one to talk to, no one to turn to except his father in heaven. So he's in Gethsemane. And at the end of this, he says, look, see, my betrayer is at hand. So from Gethsemane, you look up to the walls of Jerusalem. And it takes about 10 minutes for someone to walk from the walls of Jerusalem to get down to the garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus would have seen, uh, as the crowd comes out from one of the gates of Jerusalem, they're carrying their torches, their clubs, and etc. And he's got 10 minutes of anguish as he watches them get closer and closer. And he knows exactly what they're there for, and he knows exactly what comes next. I can't imagine how terrifying those 10 minutes would have been. Remember, he can turn around and he can run to the east and he can get out of there. Jesus is not going to his death unwillingly. Jesus watches and he waits patiently as this band of chief priests and soldiers come closer and closer and closer. And so we see Judas arriving with the rest in verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Just in case you forgot who Judas was. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, in verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. It would have been dark. It would have been hard to tell them apart. So they came up with this signal of Judas would um, plant a kiss on the, the person who was The Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, verse 49 and 50. It says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In the 14th century, there's an Italian poet by the name of Dante. You might have heard of him before. He writes a uh, epic poem called The Divine Comedy. And in it, he describes his ideas of what hell is like. It's not really a reflection of what the Bible says about hell, but it's a reflection of what the medieval Catholic theology and um, artists thought about hell in the 14th century. But in it, he gives this description of hell, which is a, um, it's got circles to it. And, and the circles get progressively worse. So in the outer circles, you've got things like lust, and then you have um, gluttony, and then you have greed. And as it's getting closer and closer to the center, it's the worse and worse sins and the, the most awful of, of human actions. And the center of the circle is betrayers. Dante sees that as the ultimate sign of human depravity and evil. And in that circle, you have some betrayers throughout history. You have the Greek soldier um, Antenor, the one who um, gave up the city of Troy in the Trojan Wars. You have Brutus and Cassius, the, one, the senators who betrayed Julius Caesar and assassinated him. And finally, right in the middle, you have Judas himself the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate act of evil. And you and I know uh, if you've ever had a friend who's betrayed in any sense or let you down, um, if you've had any experience with betrayal, it's really one of the most awful things that you can endure. And Jesus endures this in the ultimate level. A friend of his, someone that he had called to follow him, someone that he had shared so much with, Um, not only leaves him, not only joins the other team, but actively leads his enemies to him so that they can capture him and kill him. Verse 51. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew, perhaps... As a, an act of mercy, he doesn't tell us who it was. But John, in his gospel, he tells us that it was Peter. Um, Peter, <laughs> he goes from zero to a 100 mile an hour. Um, if we see him in this chapter. First of all, he's declaring, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then he's falling asleep when Jesus needs him most. And then he's bringing out his sword and cutting off an ear. And then by the end of the chapter, he's going to be adamantly denying that he never knows Jesus. All in the, um, all in the time frame of one small night. G- uh, Peter is one of the most mysterious characters in the scriptures, but perhaps um, he can also be one of the most relatable. We see here Jesus, he he again corrects Peter. He says in verse 52, And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all those who take by the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. He didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's not miss the point here. Matthew 26 is not a celebration of human conduct by any means. If you want to remind yourself how good and decent humans are, don't read Matthew 26. You'll be severely let down. Matthew 26 is moral failure in the highest degree. It's got betrayal. It's got denial. It's got a failure to comfort your friends when they need it most. It's got a reaction of violence when Peter takes out his sword. It's got a classic case of injustice where powerful people are taking an innocent man and accusing him of things just so that they can keep their position of power. It's got a rigged courtroom full of um, influential people. It's got Jesus finally being spat upon, being physically harmed, being slapped, taunted and derided. And just in case that wasn't enough to show you the wickedness that humans can produce, we end with verses 69 to 75. Peter's denial of Jesus. The one person who we really thought might get there in the end. The one person who we thought, well, even if everyone goes away, he he's going to be faithful. And he denies Jesus. In verse 74 and 75, it says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And he wept bitterly. And when you read Matthew 26, you can't help but finishing and wanting to weep bitterly as well. It's not a feel-good chapter. It's one of the most embarrassing chapters in human history. Matthew's not trying to give you an argument that human beings are wonderful people and how much they deserve God's blessings. I think he's putting forward an undeniable case for the opposite. Isaiah looks at the human condition in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 and he says all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. When you get to the end of chapter 26, there's one thing that should be just crystal clear in your head and that thing is the only way that God can ever work with humans is if he can show them mercy and forgiveness like has never seen, been seen in history. I'm never going to earn a good standing with God. Because I'm with them here. I'm with the deniers. I'm with the betrayers. And you are too. Just look at how we mess everything up. Romans chapter 3. If you just turn to Romans chapter 3 with me. And we'll finish here. Verses 21 to 24. Romans three twenty one 21-24 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace freely or as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's our main point for today. Being right with God is not something I deserve. And if I ever fool myself into thinking that, just go back and read Matthew 26. It is nothing but a free gift. Not through my work, but only because God loves me. He loves me so dearly. This doesn't mean that you end this lesson and you're filled with self-hate and despair. It doesn't mean that you go away and despise yourself and, and lose all confidence It means that your confidence doesn't come through your moral accomplishments. It comes through God's unchanging, never depleted, overflowing love. Paul says in Ephesians 3, you're more loved than you can comprehend. But Matthew 26 tells us, you're more flawed than you think. The Bible is not primarily to make you feel good about yourself. The the reason I love the Bible is because It is the most real and honest analysis of the human condition that you ever find. You never find any other piece of literature that will so brutally expose what you and I are truly like. It puts a spotlight on not just what's wrong with the world, but what's wrong with you and me. But it doesn't leave us hopeless. It doesn't end in Matthew 26. We don't finish the story here. Story has still got two chapters to go. And yes, Peter's weeping bitterly now, but soon he'll be jumping for joy. And the answer is not a politician and it's not a philosophy and it's not some advice on how to live a good life. If you were paying attention, Jesus already gave you the answer. When he took the cup and when he said, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.